Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. Today, we're joined by Guy Turner, co-founder and managing director of Hyde Park Venture Partners. Hyde Park Venture Partners is an early stage venture capital firm focused on high growth, mid-continent technology startups with B2B SaaS and consumer marketplace business models. They're based in Chicago and Indianapolis. Guy, thanks so much for joining us today. We're looking forward to the conversation. So to start with, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into venture. Great. Jennifer Thanasis, thanks for having me. So my background, I started as a mechanical engineer for about five years and was on pretty extreme technical end of what mechanical engineers do and realized that it was extremely siloed. I wanted to know what all the other functions in the businesses I worked in did. So marketing and sales and all of that. So I went to business school and had the fortune of meeting my partner, the partner with whom we started Hyde Park Venture Partners together. He was a professor at the University of Chicago, angel investor, and was running an angel group at the time. And we really hit it off. As I graduated, we decided to raise a fund together based mostly on his prior track record as an angel, which was extremely strong. And that's what we did. So it took a couple of years of doing a different full-time job and consulting and lots of nights and weekends, as many first-time GPs know. Mm -hmm. And we started out with our first $25 million fund in 2011, the very end of 2011. Great. And there's four partners, correct? How did you meet the other partners that you have on the team? Yeah, that's right. So we have three partners right now who are completely day-to-day. One of our partners, Tim Kopp, is now running one of our portfolio companies, still spends time with us on the investing side as well, but he's a majority of his time is at one of our portfolio companies. So my first partner, Ira and I met, as I mentioned, while I was at business school, best kept secret for business school students is get to know your professors, not just your peers, because it can really literally be life-changing. And then we met our other partner, Greg, Several years in, we were actually looking to hire an associate. Greg was introduced to us, and we actually hired him as a principal, and he became a partner several years ago. And then Tim, our partner who now runs one of our portfolio companies, we actually met him through a bunch of angel investing that he did after he was the chief marketing officer of Exact Target. After they sold that to Salesforce, he was there for a little bit and then was out exploring the world as an angel investor. We did a bunch of deals together. We hit it off and he joined us and was 100% on the investing side for about five years and now splits his time between that and operating. Awesome. And what do you love the most about venture capital? I'm going to pick two things. The first thing is I love not knowing what's going to happen in the day when I wake up. This is the most unscripted profession there is, and that's really fun. Uh, Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's challenging, but it's totally unscripted, which is great. And then the other thing is I I really do love working with entrepreneurs once we're invested. And I much prefer that to the art of diligence and term sheets and all the stuff that seems sexy for a lot of young folks who want to get into venture. It's working with great entrepreneurs. That's really rewarding. And out of which fund are you investing now? Yeah, we're now on our third fund. That's a $100 million fund. And we had a $65 million fund in between. Great. And tell us a little more about the fund and the strategy. 
Yeah. So it's interesting. We've grown the fund size fairly meaningfully, 25 million, the first fund, 100 million, the third, but the strategies actually remain remarkably consistent. We are really early investors focused on the Midwest. And what we specialize in is finding the best entrepreneurs in our geographies. What that breaks down to is about six or seven cities. In non-pandemic times, we spend a ton of time on the ground getting to know the networks of entrepreneurs in, in other kind of feeder funds and so forth. And we work with companies before they're ready for a coastal fund. We work with companies to refine go-to-market strategy, build out their teams from the first couple of hires that they usually have when we're investing in them to really the first professional management team who work with the founders. And that's what we specialize in. And then ultimately helping them find follow-on capital. So really very much from a lens of stage and geography. We've invested across all sorts of industries and business models. Over time, companies can be everywhere, but it's interesting that a lot of funds used to be geographically focused, but have moved away from that. So I'm curious about what makes the Midwest different from your perspective. Yeah, the pandemic certainly caused us to have some existential self-discovery about that question in particular. I think as with most things, there will be, of course, quite a bit of permanent effect from the pandemic, but then also a lot of mean reversion after. Or as someone else said it to me, as soon as people spend a summer in Miami, they're never going to want to go back there again. I think there are inherent online networks that allow people to forego geographic talent networks. And we have a couple of cases in our portfolio. For example, we have one company called Podchaser. In fact, we can get this podcast into Podchaser's database. But that company, the founders live all over the place and have actually never met each other. We believe that is the most extreme version of what is possible. <laughs> and that- I don't think I've ever heard a case like that. The founders have never met each other? They've never met in person. Wow. Where do they live? And now I don't think they're going to because it's become a thing for them. So one of them lives in Louisville and I forget where the other two live. It's possible one of them lives in Indianapolis. I'm actually okay. blanking. How did you guys get comfortable around that? Because one of the things that as a VC, sometimes you want to see is like people have worked together. They know each other because you worry about the team sticking together. What was the discussion like in your group around that issue? Yeah, it's funny. We, we didn't spend a ton of time dwelling on it, which is actually odd now that I think about it, because we're usually pretty thoughtful about that geographic question. But the CEO lives in our geography. What's most important to us is that we can be in person with the founder or the founders and be helpful to them. And that is still largely a geographic game. So you, you asked me like, well, you didn't exactly ask me this, but I'm going to interpret the question as in this pandemic and future state of a more distributed team, what is the relevance of a geographic network? And it's funny when we talk to companies and we're trying to figure out like, quote unquote, where are they? We usually just ask the question or I ask the question, where's the holiday party? Mm. And it's fair. There may be companies who never have a holiday party. It's on Zoom. And one founder is on that side of the country, one founder is on the other side. But we actually think for the most part, most companies will still have a local nexus. And because of that, have specific relevance to a talent nexus in a certain geography. The other thing that's really true about our business models, we've tended to invest in companies that have a reason to be in the Midwest, not just they happen to be here, but they have a reason to. So we've done a lot of investing in logistics. We've done a lot of investing in fintech, of course, Chicago and, and Toronto, where we invest is well known for that. 
and there is a geographic relevance to industry as well. That makes sense. And speaking to getting to know founders, I think you, you had a couple of blog posts about this. One was you had interviewed a couple other VCs about how much time they spend with the founding team ahead of investing and writing the first check. And then secondly, you've written about important characteristics of a founding team that are really important. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? You know, there's lots of different factors. First thing, the hard thing about venture that I'm sure most people can appreciate and to a certain extent startups as well is that by the time you recognize a pattern of success in the investments you've made, the conditions that were predicate to that pattern have often changed. Mm -hmm. Meaning, oh man, we did all this investing in logistics and it was great. Let's do more logistics investing. Maybe that's not smart because now you're over that curve. And likewise with business models, whether it's social, mobile, blah, 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 blah. So by the time you recognize a pattern, often the conditions that establish the pattern have changed. But the one really strong exception to that is this pattern that not all, but most successful companies that we've invested in have very explicit founder industry fit, where the founder doesn't mean they were there for 20 years. They might be young. They might be 25, 26. Maybe they spent three or four years in the space not long enough to be jaded, but long enough to understand it well. And that has really been the primary pattern. We have founders who are multiple-time founders, successful founders. We have first-time successful founders, and, and that's the one that sticks. What are some of your go-to questions when it comes to assessing how capable a founder is or, or certain characteristics that, that you look for? I know that there's, uh, in your blog post, there's five actions that matter in startups, execute, hire, learn, build relationships, and communicate. How do you assess, I guess, on the first meeting or, or the period of getting to know a founder before you're writing a check, those qualities? Yeah, I think one of the values of our firm is to be responsive. And we view ourselves as service providers when we work with entrepreneurs, especially the good ones, have lots of choices of money. And so we want to be responsive and reduce friction in a relationship and have things and communications move back really easily between us and the people we work with. And all of those things you mentioned, execution can be measured in milestones that are on paper, learning. There's a certain openness you understand in conversations. You also see how they build their team and so on and so forth. But the one that's actually the easiest to measure in diligence is the person you're working with on the other side responsive? Do they keep the ball moving back and forth in the, in the discussion quickly and easily? If not, you should assume that they don't with anybody. And then that says a lot about their ability to execute and learn and all those kinds of things. And we've seen that consistently. It would be easy to conclude, for example, that as a VC, you're trying to invest in companies that have lots of choices where like you're the last person in. You want to be the last person into the club and have the door shut. So why would they be responsible to you when you stuck into the round? But it seems to be a universal truth that great founders are just on top of their shit, no matter how important or unimportant you are to them. Yeah, very true. Do you find yourself investing in more syndicated rounds or do you take the bulk of the early rounds that you lead or participate in? We're pretty syndicate agnostic. So we'll lead, we'll co-lead, we'll follow. I would say early on, we for the most part had a preference to be with other investors. And I would say we're slightly biased towards that. Interestingly enough, when we look back at our companies, and I wouldn't say that this is a pattern that has enough, enough of a sample on it, but 
when we look back at our most successful companies, most of them were, I wouldn't call them contrarian bets. That's a too sexy way to put it, but they were investments that other people didn't want to make. Mm -hmm. I won't name names, but we have several companies that, man, we worked really hard to help them get their round together and find other investors. And both of those companies are worth a half a billion dollars. Yeah. Which is not to say we're brilliant. It's to say that the Rorschach tests at the early stage has lots of different answers. That was the case on one of our prior early stage funds when we had done something similar. And we had one company where literally they spoke to every other VC and nobody would fund them. And right. when you're a contrarian is when you make most of your money because you pick on something maybe that others didn't pick on until it's much later. In that vein, do you want to pick one of the companies that you're most proud of and just tell us like how you met them, what you saw in the promise of the strategy and what happened? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say I'll probably talk about ShipBob. That's an investment that my partners, Ira and Greg made. It's very pandemic appropriate. So it feels like a good topic. So ShipBob does highly tech-enabled third-party logistics for e-commerce sellers. So if you're an e-commerce company, you have a Shopify site, you sell on Amazon, you sell on eBay, Etsy, et cetera. They unify all of that from a software perspective and forward logistics and reverse logistics perspective, but then they also take physical inventory and do fulfillment. So we originally met the company. It is a YC company, but I think we knew them before YC. And the original play was, I believe it was on-demand last mile logistics. So I think they were, I'm trying to remember exactly. Yeah, I think they were almost like a courier service or something like that. Mm-hmm. We got to know the team. They had an e-commerce site themselves prior and were experimenting with a bunch of different last mile related use cases. And we just stayed in touch with them. Both Ira and Greg did over a period of about two or three years. They went through YC and then they stumbled on this version of what they do, which was, this is less about last mile and more about the seller's problem per se. Mm -hmm. And dove right into it. We led a series A it was not a deal that was highly competitive, but every round they've led since has been competitive. And, and frankly, much more importantly, they've done phenomenally well, even before COVID. But as you can imagine, things have just gone bonkers now. And they had their own experience, personal experience in e-commerce, but they were very young founders. Actually, one of them was a developer at one of our other companies, which is how I think we originally met him. And they have just executed perfectly. I was on the phone with one of them the other day about a completely separate topic. And what I said to him is true, which is there are certainly successful companies, but most successful companies experience quite a bit of drama along the way. Yep. <laughs> and this team, they just figure it out. That's awesome. Has COVID changed how you look at different sectors? You're obviously geographically focused, but have you changed for the types of companies that you look for? I actually think there's two ways to think about it. So there was, we're in COVID, but we don't yet have enough data in terms of how it affects companies. And so we have to play a guessing game and develop theses on what will benefit and what won't and what's orthogonal. And I would say that lasted until the end of the summer. And by then we had the data. Companies either did well or they didn't. And that's fairly self-explanatory. I wouldn't say that we've yet made any investments that are a bet on COVID ending. We, we know it'll end. We think it'll end this year. 
know, knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. But we haven't invested in anything that's been completely killed by COVID. And therefore, we think it's counter cyclical investing and we're brilliant. We've definitely made a couple of investments that are, that are orthogonal, essentially not, shouldn't be affected by it one way or another. Yeah. On that note, are there some themes or theses that you guys are, are most excited about right now, COVID or not? Yeah. So with respect to COVID, just like everyone else, we've certainly looked at, and Blackheart was a, a recent investment we made in e-commerce enablement. So Blackheart is a try before you buy service layer that plugs into websites and allows people to do that. So that would be a good example. We're not unique in that, but it's a massive market and really good entrepreneurs who are playing there are always welcome. So we touched on COVID implications a little bit. In your view, what is the future of digital health? Yeah, the, the future of digital health, I think, is largely about unifying experiences. You're seeing insurance and care merge together through what used to be called ACOs, now Medicare Advantage, yada, yada, yada. And I think that's going to, right now, that's mostly for public plans, but I think that's going to move more and more into private plans. You're also seeing the market move in that direction from the other side, which is through concierge medicine or direct primary care, as people like to call it, less fancy. So I'm a pretty strong believer in that. And uh, the question is, where does the digital layer weave into that? Because of course, both of those things, whether it's direct primary care or fully capitated healthcare services, they can be fully manual or they could have a digital layer. And, and look, it's no brilliance to say that we're going to see a deeper and deeper digital layer as part of that. We just met the other day with a, a digital physical therapy company, the company called Hinge has become, it's, it's not the one we met with, but there's a company called Hinge that's become pretty hot stuff. And so there's so many of these components. Very different that, than the dating app. <laughs> yeah. I don't actually know the dating app. So I okay. will assume that's just a, that's just a note from my wife. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you just have to assume more and more is going to be taken over that. There's a book the, this vision is not new. This vision has been around for 10 or 15 years. There's a book by Clayton Christensen, who I think just recently passed away. It's called The Healthcare Innovator's Dilemma or something. He wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, but then there's a healthcare application of it. And it you know, basically just describes anything that's complicated will stay in the hands of highly trained physicians and anything that's simple, routine-based, decision tree-based, or that can be patterned in AI, he doesn't say that because this was before AI, but that's the truth, will end up being done by a computer. Pretty simple. But from a consumer perspective, I think the single point of contact is going to become increasingly important. So the experience yep. and service of healthcare matter. Definitely. In an ecosystem, usually there's some seminal companies that attract a lot of talent, and then you see spillouts from those companies where people leave and start new companies. What are those companies where you see a lot of talent spilling out and starting other companies in the Midwest? So in the past, I try not to go too far back, but I would say, call it something like $10 billion plus exits in the last decade. That would be roughly true in our geography. Exact Target was a huge amplifier in Indianapolis, a $3 billion exit. Duo Security in Michigan has been a huge amplifier and, and spun out a lot of talent. Here in Chicago, it's interesting. Groupon, of course, nationally has a bit of a mixed performance record, but in Chicago, it was tremendous 
for creating a whole bunch of young and excited entrepreneurs, some of whom had made a nice little nest egg as well. So that was quite influential. Grubhub, to a certain extent, the senior teams from Grubhub for sure, and and we were actually investors in a, a company started by a number of them called Fixer, but I wouldn't say we've seen the same volume out of there as we saw out of Groupon. One reason may be that Grubhub kept doing really well and Groupon did not. And you have a spreading of that talent. In Ohio, there's Cover My Meds, which has now turned out a couple of really interesting, I wouldn't say spinoffs, but entrepreneurs doing interesting things. One's called Script Drop. And I know I'm missing other exits, but there's Sprout Social here in Chicago. We're seeing more of that talent come onto the market, but we'd love to see more. Right. Hopefully out of our portfolio. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that. Do you see that former entrepreneurs that have been really successful and made some good money, do they want to come back and do another one? That's what's happening in Silicon Valley and what's feeding that ecosystem. And I've heard other people outside of Silicon Valley sometimes complain that people have a success and they feel like, hey, I've been successful. Now, maybe I'll just serve on boards. What are you seeing in your portfolio? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I've never actually thought of that potential sort of cultural difference between Silicon Valley, where, you know, the first question you ask is, what are you working on? What are you building? Versus everywhere else. It's tempting to go play golf in Southwest Michigan for the rest of your life. But no, I think generally we've seen entrepreneurs, we have our more high profile companies. We have a number of multiple time entrepreneurs who are just at it again, even though they've made way more money than they or their multiple generations later will need. So that's encouraging. In fact, one of them, and I won't name names because it's none of my business too, but one of them went down the path initially of, oh, I'll be an early stage angel investor and do board seats. Like I, I want to help entrepreneurs do what I did. So I'll put my money to work there and put my time to work on boards. And I remember he said, he's, man, I made 15 investments. They were all zeros. And I realized I'm much better off investing in myself. And so that's, that's where that person went next. And I, I think there is a lot of truth to that. It's hard to move out of the operator seat into the advisor seat mm-hmm. unless you have a, a really strong lifestyle incentive to do so. So one thing I want to ask you, you are the co-inventor of two U.S. patents. That was a fun yeah. fact in the bio. So oh, sure. to ask. Yeah. So those were when I was at GE at their appliance and lighting division. One is a stove griddle or range griddle that spreads the heat more evenly. So there was something unique to the kind of parabolic shape of the cast iron. Do you cook with that now? It's funny. I was just thinking about it. And I never think about these patents. Randomly, someone will ask me about them every couple of years. But I'm, yeah, I'm renovating my apartment and I'm thinking about getting a range and it crossed my mind. I was like, I wonder if that griddle is out there somewhere. So we'll find out. And then the others related to a headlight for a car. That's pretty yeah, cool. Having, has nothing to do with I do with what I do now. So people, the investor or the entrepreneurs that we invest in, if they're smart enough, when I brag about having been an engineer, should ask me, what kind of engineer are you? And I'm a mechanical engineer, which means I know nothing about all these software companies that we're investing in. Are you the type of person that constantly comes up with stuff like this, where you're walking around your house and you're like, oh my gosh, this would be a more appropriate way of doing X, Y, and Z. And you think of the contraption or whatever it is in your head. There's like certain types of people. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> so I have a lot of respect for people who are. And it sounds like I think there might be more patents in your future. 
I honestly don't view, I know some people who are really creative and make lots of stuff. And I unfortunately would not count myself among them. I'm not useless when it comes to that stuff, but I think there are other people who are much more creative than I am. I'd be curious about what advice you would give young people now that are starting in college and they're excited about technology businesses, maybe investing in businesses. Would you advise them to go to engineering or would you say, hey, you're better off learning on the job, so to speak, through internships? Oh boy, the value of education. I didn't think we were, I didn't think <laughs> we were going to go there. So it's interesting. My We have a bit of a divide in my family because my wife comes from a long line of uppity liberal arts degrees. <laughs> and then they've all gone to do other things. My wife's a teacher. Her mom was an investor. And I come from a fairly long line of highly functional degrees. I had two grandparents that were engineers. My father was an architect. So those are like, you get out of school and you have a toolbox of skills and you walk into your job, you open your toolbox up and you take them out and you do stuff. So I think I tend to bias more towards that, but I don't actually think there's a right answer. I certainly believe that getting exposure to code is pretty darn important, whether people need to be fluent in coding, I, that seems less so to me, but the, to understand the logic behind how essentially the whole world works at this point seems pretty important. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I got. No, I think it does because I always thought, and you said, gee, I was a mechanical engineer. I couldn't, you know, and this is all about software, but I was an electrical engineer, but I still felt the same way because you study stuff that, you know, is very sure. specific. But I think the education teaches you a way of thinking that allows you to understand when you talk to technology people, understand what they're talking about and even understand when they're bullshitting you, so to speak. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, a, a technical background of some sort is a benefit in venture. If we're talking about venture specifically, if we're talking about startups, then you know, it takes all types to build a successful startup. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so now we're going to shift to four standard questions that we ask at the end of our podcast. And this is an attempt to get to know you better personally. The first question might be actually super relevant since your group is a member of NVCA. The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy and supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. So if there was one thing that you would change about the venture capital industry or one policy that you would advocate for, what would it be? More immigration. That's it. Speaks for itself. Talk to us a little bit about that. We're big supporters of that initiative as well, but talk about the need. To put it simply, our portfolio represents that of many other investors. We have a ton of companies in our portfolio that are started by immigrants. And everyone already knows the story about Google and all these other places that were, were started by immigrants. That's number one. And then number two, the talent war hasn't dissipated with the pandemic, certainly not in technology. And I'm not going to say anything that lots of other people haven't said and don't think, but we just need to get people to come here and stay here and put their minds to work. Perfect. Second question, if you were not a VC investor and money was not a concern, what career would you have? Uh, yeah, it's funny. I think this is similar to a lot of other investors, venture investors, and that's why they get into this business. But almost everything makes me curious. So it's hard to say. I feel like there are 
many parallel universes going on at once where I have different careers and I'm happy about that. I'm sorry, I can't actually personally experience all of them, but I took a gap year between high school and college and I went to furniture building school. I think certainly in several of those parallel universes, I'm building furniture. Would that keep me occupied for the rest of my life? I'm not so sure. You and Thanasis have something in common. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yes, because I am also very curious and I like doing something with my hands. So building nice. stuff. So like woodworking. I took a class over the summer with my oldest son and it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. I also last winter, I took up quilting. So as many people who have taken up quilting are, I'm halfway through a quilt. Cool. So that it would be fun to finish that too. Pretty cool. Third question, who is someone you look up to and why? I don't have a specific personal name just to protect the innocent, but we have a couple of investors who have been, one of them was a very successful entrepreneur and then investor, and another one, a very successful, a long-term, mostly distressed investor. And I look up to them because they've developed a macro view, but also experience set of the world that is so deep and that they're able to tap seamlessly and apply really lucidly to what they do on a day-to-day basis. And also they're really cool customers. They're nice people, pleasant people. They've developed teams that have worked with them for years. All of those are very both positive things from a human and professional perspective. And so I look up to that. I would love to know more and be able to put it to work. That comes with time. And I would love to always be a nice guy. I try, but I'm sure I'm not. And the final and fourth question is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Yeah, I'm going to throw this out for the aspiring and currently engaged first-time GPs. So when we started our fund, we got two or three pieces of really golden advice that we ignored and then had to learn the hard way. But the first piece of advice, which is just incredibly insightful and true, is once you raise your first capital, invest really slowly because the learning curve is extremely steep. And while it is defined by cycles, it's also defined just by time. And so the longer you wait to write check two, three, four, five, the higher you get up it. And that was a big learning for us. We made a lot of mistakes. I, I made a lot of mistakes early on. The other piece of advice, I know you asked for one, but for, for first-time GPs is once you have your first close, don't take your foot off the pedal on raising the rest of the capital. Mm-hmm. And that goes hand in hand with don't deploy it too quickly because if you're deploying it, you're not raising it. That's very sage advice. Definitely. Guy, thank you so much for taking the time today. We really appreciate it. And it was great to learn more about you and Hyde Park Venture Partners. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, Thanasis. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc. Thank you.